Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. The word which came to Jeremiah... Whoa! (laughs) I won't put my foot there, sorry. I know, sorry about that. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this... Luke, can we turn this? Uh, Something's going on there. Are you already on it? Never mind. (laughs) Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. You shall speak with your face. uh, You shall speak with. He shall speak with you. Excuse me, face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you: You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, "Alas, Lord." For I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Now, if you've been here and you've been going through the book of Jeremiah with us, you probably know this already. If you're not familiar with it, the chapters in the book of Jeremiah are not in chronological order. At the time that this chapter here was written, uh, was occurring, Jeremiah was not in, pro- or not in prison when this prophecy was given to him. But we just read last week in chapters 34 uh, 33 and 34, excuse me, that he was put in prison as a result of this prophecy. So this is, there's a little bit of a kind of a switcheroo here. Um, Zedekiah, the king, put Jeremiah in, pro- in prison because of this prophecy about the Babylonian invasion that was going to happen in, uh, to Jerusalem. Who was Zedekiah? Well, he was also known as Mataniah. He was Jehoiachin's Uncle, you could say, well, okay, who's Jehoiachin? Jehoiachin was the son of Jehoiakim. Does that make it a little better for you? (laughs) Jehoiakim, okay, you have Josiah. He was the king of Judah. His son was Jehoiakim, who took over uh, when when Josiah died. Uh, Then the king of Babylon took Jehoiakim uh, to Babylon and placed Jehoiachin, uh, I think I got that right, Jehoiachin, no, excuse me. Jehoiakim died. Jehoiachin reigned in place of Jehoiakim. This is really a, this is a test for me. And uh, he only reigned for three months, and he was taken into Babylon in chains. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah uh, the king in place and uh, renamed him Zedekiah. So that's who this Zedekiah is. Zedekiah was placed on the throne by the king of Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And he rebelled against Babylon and tried to align Judah with the king of Egypt because they wanted to kind of join forces to, to resist the Babylonians. This prophecy that the Lord gives here in this first part of this chapter was literally fulfilled, and it's recorded in 2 Kings 25. What happened was Zedekiah and the men of war 
you know, the, the, the Babylonians had built a siege around the city so they, no, one's in, no one could get in, no one could come out, no water could come into the city, no food. They were basically starving and demoralizing the people before they would actually attack the city. And during that time, Zedekiah and the men of war managed to try, they managed to escape the city of Jerusalem at night, but they were captured by the Chaldeans, it's another name for the Babylonians, at a place called Riblah. And as a result, Zedekiah was brought face to face before the king of Babylon. And uh, the king of Babylon took Zedekiah's two sons and murdered them in his presence as he's watching. And then they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. And that was the last thing he saw was the king that he rebelled against and his two sons being killed. And then he was hauled off to Babylon where he died years later. So this, was, this prophecy was literally fulfilled. He did see the king face to face. He did die in Babylon. So continuing here in verse 6. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem when the king of Babylon's armies fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah. For only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. In 1935 in Israel there were these letters that were fragments. There's about 21 fragments of letters that were unearthed by archaeologists, and they're called the Lachish letters. They were written during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, and they confirm that Lachish and Azekah were indeed the last two fortified cities that, that remained outside of Jerusalem during the Babylonian uh, uh, invasion of the land. And so it basically, you know, it's, it's really cool. You read about this stuff in the Bible, and then eventually archaeologists discover stuff and go, hey, the Bible's true. Isn't that fascinating? Well, that's because it's God's Word, and God's Word is true. And uh, so, you know, the Bible that you're reading right now, uh, you can take full confidence in this being God's Word. It hasn't been changed. It wasn't written, you know, just as stories by man. It literally happened, historical. And uh, so, therefore, um, has lots of important uh, purpose, or there's a purpose for you and I having it today as well. Verse eight. This is the war. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. What this is talking about was when Israel became a nation. And God, you know, built the nation, gave them the land. He told the children of Israel not to take slaves of their Hebrew brothers and sisters because they had been slaves in Egypt. They should know what it was like, so they were to not do that. However, you know, as the part of doing transactions and conducting business, if a Hebrew was unable to pay their debts and they, they were too poor to pay it, they could work voluntarily as a slave, basically without getting paid. They could pay off their, their debts to their to the to fellow Hebrew that they owed. And so um, they would be allowed to do that. They would be allowed to enslave themselves to those, uh, but they could only do it for six years. At the end of six years, in the seventh year, they had to be set free by their, uh, by the Hebrews, by their fellow Hebrews, their masters, um, the seventh year was the year of liberty. You know, when you read through the Bible, there's so much symbolism in the Bible. Um, God used creation. You know, He created the earth in seven days, and he, or in six days, and in the seventh day, 
he rested. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at the history of mankind. Mankind has been on the earth, you know, if you go back to Adam and Eve, roughly about 6,000 years or six millennium. And uh, mankind during that time, of course, has been enslaved to sin. The earth has been enslaved by the curse of the fall. And so you've got six millenniums, 6,000 years, and we're about at some point entering into the seventh millennium or 7,000 years. I believe this is one of the reasons why Jesus Christ's return to the earth is very, very soon. Because, uh, you know, I think that seventh millennium, that 7,000th year, is going to be the, the, the millennium when Jesus Christ reigns, when, when mankind is set free from its bondage to sin and set free from the curse of the fall and, and uh, Jesus reigns on the earth physically for a 1,000 years. So I, I think it's exciting. He's coming someday soon. You know, the Bible says with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And so if you think of it in terms of creation, you know, mankind's been on the earth six days in God's timing. And so the seventh day is coming up. Could be very soon. So I'm excited about that. Verse 10. So that's what that's about. This, this you know, uh, setting, setting their, their Hebrew slaves free. Verse 10. Now when all the princes... And all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore. They obeyed and let them go. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. You know, on the surface... It may have finally appeared that Zedekiah, the king, and the, the, the people of Judah or the people of Jerusalem were finally going to repent. Well, this is one of the reasons why, not, not the only reason why they went into captivity, but it was one of the reasons why they went into captivity because of this enslaving their fellow brothers and sisters. And uh, so here it's like, okay, they're finally repenting. They're finally going to set free their slaves. They're finally going to do what God has commanded them to do. But then it says they changed their minds and they re-enslaved the same people that they had set free. Now, one thing to bear in mind, as I mentioned earlier, the Babylonians had surrounded Jerusalem at this time. There was a famine going on at this time. They were around Jerusalem for roughly about 18 months. And if you owned slaves, of course, you'd have to feed slaves. And if food was scarce... Hey, it'd be a lot more convenient just to let your slaves go free so you wouldn't have to worry about feeding them. You just, you know, they, they could take care of themselves. So that might have been one of the reasons why they did that. But there's something else, too. And I think this is even more uh, uh, profound or more of a factor. During that siege of Jerusalem in 588 B.C., Egypt, the king of Egypt, at one point decided he was going to go down and he was going to try to rescue Jerusalem from the Babylonians. And so he started marching actually up from Egypt into Israel. The Babylonians heard about it and they left their siege of Jerusalem and went to fight the Egyptians. And so for a, moment, for a, for a period of time, that siege was lifted on the city, so then they could get bring food. They could, you know, they could start, you know, kind of re replenishing the city, so to speak. And so during this siege, it, it, you know, there were false prophets that were telling the people that God isn't going to allow the Babylonians to step foot in Jerusalem. He's going to deliver you. And so it 
on the surface, it appeared like, hey, that, that crisis is over. They're leaving. And so these people, they had made this covenant with, the God, with God and releasing their slaves. They're like, Psh. you know, and they re-enslaved the people once more. I think it's so much like human nature. You know, when things get rough, when things get desperate, people seemingly turn to the Lord, right? We saw that when uh, 9-11 occurred. You see that when there's crises has occurred. People turn to the Lord. Now, whether or not they are sincere, of course, is proven over time. A lot of people, you know, churches were filled up around 2000, uh, you know, when 9-11 occurred. And uh, I remember even in our neighborhood, we were out, you know, praying with neighbors. I haven't prayed with my neighbors since. I prayed for my neighbors, but I haven't prayed with my neighbors since that, uh, that, one, that one night when President Bush got on the TV and said, I want you to pray with the neighborhoods, light a candle and pray. And so we went out there, and sure enough, some of our neighbors were doing the same thing, so we prayed with them. It hasn't happened since. As people are so fickle. I don't know if you caught this story. Just recently, there was a girl who, uh, I think it was last fall, she went on a carnival cruise um, tour. I don't know where she was, but turns out she was in her room, and she was up. she had a balcony room on this cruise ship and uh, she had had too much to drink and uh, she anyways fell off the balcony three stories down hit a lifeboat and then bounced off the lifeboat and fell five more stories into the ocean and it happened at night and so she had you know she had a, a bleeding head wound and here she is at night in the ship and it's pitch black and the ship is sailing off into the distance most people in fact very few people survive anything like that well, her friend was in a bathroom and came out and realized that she wasn't there, suspected that she had fallen over. They hadn't heard anything, but suspected that's what happened. So she ran down to the captain, told the captain, you know, my friend's overboard, turned the ship around. And the captain's like, we're not going to turn around until we conduct a full search. So they conducted a full search, or they started to. Anyways, some, at some point, the captain was convinced to turn the ship around. So this lady was in the ocean for about an hour. And uh, miraculously... They found her and rescued her. Well, why do we hear about it now? Why am I even bringing it up now? Well, now she is suing Carnival. She's suing Carnival for not protecting her enough when she was fallen down drunk. She's suing them for not searching for her soon enough. And her lawyer was interviewed on TV, and the lawyer says, it's not about the money. <laughs> when a lawyer tells you it's not about money, it's about the money, I can tell you that. Um, unless he did it pro bono, you know, he's not charging, then, then, then maybe he's sincere, it's not about the money. But um, if you're a lawyer here, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, why am I bringing this up? Well, I watched the interview of, of the girl, and she's talking about her experience, how she fell into the ocean, and she had a bleeding head wound, and she was worried about sharks. She couldn't see anything, and the ship is sailing off to, to the distance. And so what did she do? She started praying. God, rescue me. God, deliver me. Don't let me die. Don't let me drown. Don't let me get eaten by sharks. And uh, God answered her prayer. And, and I thought, wow, what a testimony. And then now you hear that she's suing Carnival because they didn't, you know, they didn't protect her from being drunk you know, when she was too drunk. And uh, you know, I can't judge her. Um, I don't know if she had a changed life or not, but, um, you know, people are like that. They go through crises. They, they seemingly turn to the Lord, and as soon as the crisis is over, they revert back to their sinful ways. That's human nature. 
And we see that here with the children of Israel. The crisis, you know, uh, was there around the city. Let's let's free our slaves. You know, maybe some of them thought, well, God's gonna, you know, God's gonna, you know, gonna free us because we're finally obeying Him. Or others it was like it's more of a matter of convenience. But as soon as the crisis was over, they reverted back to their own sinful ways again. And as a result of their blatant disregard of God's commands, the Lord sends them a message through Jeremiah, verse 12. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him, When he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Here we have people that, you know, they said we're going to honor God, we're going to do this stuff, and, and then they turn their back and they do just the opposite. And God says, as a result, you're profaning my name. Paul, in his letter to the Romans He's got some pretty harsh words for the Romans. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. You know, when we profess as Christians, you know, this is what we stand for. But then we do just the opposite. We're profaning God's name. We're blaspheming God's name. The Gentiles look at it. The people look at it and go, man, you're not like, you're no different than anybody else. Sometimes we, you know, there was a time in my life when I wished I wasn't, people didn't know I was a Christian because then I could kind of do what I wanted to do. And then, you know, they wouldn't go, oh, you're a Christian, you're doing that. But uh, God has a way of kind of revealing those things. And I remember many times unbelievers coming up to me and going, I thought you were a Christian, you know, and it's, boy, the conviction, you know. Well, this is what happened. God's condemning the children of Israel because of what they have just done. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword to pestilence and to famine. And I will deliver you uh, to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. So rather than restraining them from their own wickedness and from the results of their sin, God's going to set them free to do their sin, but also to suffer the consequences of their sin. It's a sad thing when God says, okay, I'm going to let you go. Do what you're going to do. It's a sad time. It's a sad state in a person's life. But when a person disregards God's Word over and over and over again and you stop listening to the Holy Spirit convicting you and you just refuse to turn around, at some point, God sometimes gives that person over to their sin. Hey, they're, they're set free. He's no longer going to convict you of your sin. He's no longer going to warn you. And you go, ooh, that's what I've been wanting all along. But the thing is, He's also no longer going to deliver you from the consequences 
of your sin. You're free. You know, there are people that want to cast off God's restraint, and they are free. And that's what God is saying to you. Hey, I'm, I'm setting you guys free. But in exchange, they've also cast off God's protection. And that's a freedom I don't want. <laughs> it's a freedom none of us should want. Our society today is trying to cast off God's restraint. We see it in the media. You see it in the government. You see it in every aspect of our culture. Mankind and United States in particular, we're trying to cast off God's standard. We're trying to remove it from our culture. That is exactly what communism did. Communism sought to wipe out any, any trace of God. No Bibles, no churches, no word of, no, no Christians, no nothing. And uh, as a result of that, you, you get the stories like the Sabina Wormbrand book that you have, where the communists did the most evil, the most, the most heinous things to, other, to their fellow humans. And that's what happens when God is removed. When that restraining influence is removed, evil reigns, and there's no, nothing to stop it. And that's what happened with the communists. We have a woman in our church. She's actually giving her testimony in a, in a church in Millville today. Uh, she's from Cambodia. And uh, she grew up during the Pol Pot regime. And if you know anything about them, they were bloodthirsty. They were the most cruel people, godless too. And uh, she has firsthand testimony of what, God, what happens when God is removed from a culture. And it makes me sick and sad to see that this is what we're doing because history repeats itself. You look at what the, what the Nazis did in, in, in Germany to the Jews. That was because they completely tried to... Everything about God, they, won't, they, you know, they, they were trying to cast off restraint. And as a result, they did the most horrendous things that a, another person can do to human. You think, how could, how could someone do the things that they did? Well, that's because they removed God. And our nation's heading that way. Right now, you know, we're uh, on our uh, Wednesday night studies where we just finished First Thessalonians. We're heading into Second Thessalonians this coming Wednesday night. And uh, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he, he, I think it's in the ch- second chapter, he talks about the Antichrist who's coming. And he says that uh, the Antichrist will be revealed, and it says, after he who restrains him is taken out of the way. And you go, well, who's the person that's restraining the, the, the Antichrist at this point? And I believe it's the Holy Spirit living in believers in the church. And this is another reason, of course, why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture is because I believe that once that Holy Spirit and the church is removed, then there's no more restraint. And then the, Holy, then the Antichrist is going to be free to do the most wicked things, and, and he will, as the uh, Bible has prophesied. But right now, Christians and the Holy Spirit in the church is restraining that evil. You may not believe it, you may not see it, you may not notice it, but you as a believer are a restraining influence in this culture, in your workplace, in your families, in schools, wherever you're at. You are a restraining influence. You have the opportunity to pray for people. You have the opportunity to witness to people, to, to, to say, hey, you know, to be a con-, you know, not to convict people and to condemn them, but, but you know, you're there to share God's word with them. You're there to be a light in a dark place. And once that's taken away, there's no restraining evil. So God says, okay, you guys, you're, you're disregarding my word. I'm going to let you go. And they're probably thinking, woohoo, but it's, I'm going to let you go to bear the consequences too. 
the sad state of affairs when God does that in a person's life. Verse 18, And I will give the men who transgress my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into, their, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. This is really a Mother's Day theme, isn't it? <laughs> in those days when uh, a covenant or a contract was made, they would take a calf and they would sacrifice the calf and they'd cut the calf in two pieces and the two people that were making a covenant would walk between the two pieces and shake hands. That's kind of, that's like, that's kind of weird, but that's the way they did covenants in those days. Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham and, and there was, he had to pass between two, two parts of a calf. Um, so it's just that's the way they did their covenants. That's what sealed the covenant in those days. And so God is basically telling them, hey, you guys have broken my covenant. You've breached the contract. And the result? Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's armies, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. You know, there were a lot of reasons, like I mentioned earlier, why God allowed Jerusalem and and the the nation of Judah to go into captivity uh, with the Babylonians. They had sinned against him in so many ways. But this particular act of treachery, of turning back and re-enslaving the people, it was that pretty much sealed the fate for the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and for the king Zedekiah. And we're going to move into chapter 35. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jeazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Masiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us. To, bring no wine, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, nor to build houses to dwell in, uh, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell 
at Jerusalem. So we have this group of people called the Rechabites. They were Jews. They are first mentioned during the time of Moses. So they, they have history way back. One of their forefathers, Jonadab, commanded his sons and their sons after them to live an austere life. Not to, not to drink wine, not to build houses, not to plant, you know, sow seed and plant uh, vineyards and all that. Because they were sojourners. And so he said, I, I want you to do that and uh, to live simple lives. And for about two centuries, the Rechabites followed the command of their forefather, Jonadab. In the Middle East today, I don't know if they're Rechabites, but in the Middle East today, there are people who still live this way. They're called the Bedouins. And the Bedouins, they don't own land. They don't own crops. They don't own homes. They live in tents and they're shepherds. And this is how, this is how the Rechabites lived. And so Jeremiah... The Lord says, offer them some wine. And so Jeremiah brings them into the house of all these guys who I can't pronounce their names. It says, hey, have some wine. And they're like, no, we won't drink wine because this is what our forefather told us. And he said, the only reason we're in Jerusalem is because we have, we're fearing the Babylonians. You know, dwelling tents out with the enemy is probably not a safe thing. So they're in Jerusalem. Verse 12, then the word... Uh, then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings, and do not go after the other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear, nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. God's showing them a contrast. The point here is not that God's saying, you guys, you're not living an austere life like these guys are. But the fact that these people are adhering to their ancestors' commands. This is the word of this man, Jonadab, one of their forefathers. For generations... The Rechabites had obeyed the words of a man. But these, the men of Judah, the men of Jerusalem, they won't listen to the words of God and they don't obey the word of God, which is, of course, much more important than the words of man. And so God's saying, look, at, there's the contrast. You have these Rechabites. They're obeying the word of man. They're one of their forefathers and they're faithful to it. But you people are not faithful to my words and to my commands. Verse 17 Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, 
shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. So God gives this wonderful promise to the Rechabites that they're, that, you know, they're going to be basically priests to him forever. Now, I don't know a Rechabite today. Maybe you know a Rechabite. <laughs> but uh, I don't know who these people are. I don't know that we can even identify these people. But I believe God's word is true. And I believe somewhere in his, somewhere, we may not know it, but God knows who they are, that these descendants are in fact alive today. Because um, God's word has proven true over and over and over again. Well, Jeremiah 36, where you've got a little bit of time before we try to finish the whole book of Jeremiah. Just kidding. One more chapter. Jeremiah 36. Now again, remember, Jeremiah is not written in chronological order. So the events that we're about to read here in uh, chapter 36 occurred probably a decade at least before these last two chapters that we just read. And so it's dealing with Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was one of Josiah's sons. He was also known as Eliakim. So if you, there's a lot of Kims and Chins and them in the Bible, though. These are all, they're all related, basically, at least at this period of time. Jeremiah 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of, book, of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I proposed to bring upon them, which I purposed to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So here's what's taking place. Jeremiah was called as a prophet of the Lord in the uh, 13th year of the reign of Josiah. And he was just a young guy when he was called. Josiah reigned for about 18 more years after Jo- Jeremiah was called up to be a prophet, and then Jeremiah died, or excuse me, Josiah died, and uh, Jehoiachin uh, or Jehoiakim became king, and uh, this is in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. So this is probably to get, it's about twenty-two to twenty-three years of prophesying to the to the people that God says, I want you to take twenty-three years, twenty-two, twenty-three years of prophesying, and I want you to record it in a scroll. All the warnings, 23 years, all the prophecies to the, uh, to the people. You know, when I say the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, I think probably part of what you and I are reading today is, is part of that record. And then Jeremiah, probably as he's remembering things, he's recording it down, and so maybe that's why it's not in chronological order. I'm not sure, but it would make sense. So anyways, Jeremiah recalls all the words of the Lord for 23 years to the people of the land. And Baruch, a scribe, writes down as Jeremiah is remembering and recalling all the prophecies. And God said that there's a purpose behind this. The purpose for having Jeremiah collect all these prophecies into a scroll was so that the people of Israel would be reminded of all these things that God said to them. And it would get them to stop and think about all God's warnings and that they might repent of their sin and turn to Him. God is such a gracious God. He warns and He reminds and He speaks to us over and over and over again, telling us to change our ways. 
Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says in the last days, people are going to say, you know, where's the promise of His coming? I mean, everything's continued as it has for so many years. And, you know, it's like the Bible is outdated and, you know, they they make fun of the fact that Jesus is coming back. You know, it's like, (laughs) and the only reason why Jesus hasn't returned is because He's patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish. And so He's waiting for people to change their hearts, to turn to Him. That's the only reason why He's waiting. Verse 4, chapter 36. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read the scroll from which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book of the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book of the words of of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the hearing of all the people. And so... Approximately a year later, and maybe it took a year to record all the different prophecies, 23 years of prophecies. They get them all recorded. They call a fast for the people, and Baruch goes into the house of the Lord. For some reason, Jeremiah was not able to. And it, you know there was a time where he was ostracized by the priests because he was speaking against them. And so they might have just forbid him to come into the house of the Lord. And so Baruch goes in there on behalf of Jeremiah and reads the scroll before the people. Verse 11, when Micah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting, Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, whatever this guy's name, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words they had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. And so Micah, he hears Baruch reading the scroll, and he's, and he's going, man, the princes and the leaders need to hear this. And so, verse 14, uh, Therefore, all the princes sent, sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah. I wish they had like Bob and Tim, and it would be a lot easier for me. <laughs> Therefore, in Van, you know, nice names, you know. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to uh, Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, 
we will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them, He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So these princes, these leaders, you know, the, the first guy, the Micah, he hears this prophecy, and he goes, wow, the leaders need to hear it. So he tells the leaders, and they're like, well, tell the guy to come here and read it in our presence. So he reads it in their presence, and they look to one another in fear like, oh. you know, they, they realize, man, we're in sin, and God is judging us. And they go, man, the king's got to hear this. But you see, Jehoiakim was a very wicked king, and they knew that Jehoiakim was a wicked king. And they're like, man, he's going to kill Jeremiah. He's going to kill Baruch. So they say, you know, we'll tell him about it, but you guys go hide. Because they knew the reputation of, of the king. Verse 20. And they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So Je Jehoiakim, you know, he's listening to this stuff. And it, it, Baruch doesn't even get very far into the, into the reading, just a few scrolls, a few columns of, of the scroll. And he takes it with a knife, cuts it, cuts it up in pieces and throws it into the fire to, to burn. And, and, you know, these princes that brought it to him, you know, they're probably like gasping, like, oh, you know, what's he doing? Some of them apparently didn't, but there were some that, you know, they actually tried to stop him. Verse 24, um, yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments. What it, what it, what it means by that is that when a, when a person, you know, when they realize that they had violated God's commands, they, when they were to, to be repentant. And one of the signs of repentant was to tear your garments, you know, and just in grief and, and realizing how bad they've sinned against God. And, and it says that they weren't afraid. They just, pff, just disregarded it. They didn't repent. They didn't tear their garments. The king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, and here's a few guys, El Nathan, Deliah, Adeliah, whatever, and Gamara implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeramiel, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdil, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid him. God gave them a job to do, and God protected them, and God, so God hid him. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scrolls which the words, uh, with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll, and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it? that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall, not have, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. Basically, he's not going to have a proper burial. 
I will punish him, his family and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah all the doom which I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. History bears out the fulfillment of these prophecies against Jehoiakim, just as God had said. Verse 32, Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it all the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and besides, there were added to them many similar words. And so here you have this king who, you know, he didn't want to hear God's word, and so he's like just totally disregarded it, just trashed it, basically. And God says, okay, you know, this is what's going to happen. But he also says, I want you to rewrite this scroll and, and, uh, and keep it. You know, there's a lot of people today who basically do the same thing. They have a total disregard for God's word. They would, you know, would write nothing better than to trash God's word. And, you know, there are some people that say, well, you know, I, I, I like what some of God's word says. You know, I, I like the love parts. You know, I love the I love going to heaven aspect. That sounds really good. But I don't know if I agree with this aspect about sin. And I don't know if I agree with that part. I don't know, you know, and, and they start to just disregard and start to cut away at God's word and say, you know, I'll accept that because it doesn't convict me. It makes me feel good. But that part, oh, I don't know about that. And they start disregarding God's word and trashing God's word. And they do so to their own peril. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word will stand forever. This heaven and the heaven and the earth is going to pass away, but God's word is is sure. It's an amazing thing what you and I are holding in our hands, our Bibles. You know, it's written there's what, sixty six books in the Bible? There's actually forty authors that wrote the Bible. And they did it over a span of about 2,000 years and on about three different continents. And yet, it is one message, right? It's one, it's God's word, it's one message. Basically, that man has fallen into sin, that there is a penalty to be paid for sin, and that is death and eternal separation from God. But God loves man so much that he sent his son to pay the price that we couldn't pay to die on a cross for our sin. And that salvation is provided only through Christ alone. That's, I mean, that's the message of the Bible. You go, well, you're reading Jeremiah and stuff. You know, uh, you can go through from Genesis to Revelation. And in the Old Testament, there's so many pictures and so many symbolisms that point to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's like you're on this side of, of, of the resurrection looking towards the coming crucifixion, the you know the Messiah and the resurrection. You're looking that way towards it. They're, you know, they're looking forward to it. And then when you get to the New Testament, and then you start reading the New Testament, it all points back. So both ways, they're just pointing to Jesus Christ, because that's the common thread: is the Son of God who died on the cross for your and my sins. And the Bible, you know, all the words of the Bible. That's one of the reasons why we go through the entire Bible here in. In uh, Calvary Chapel, cover to cover, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because it's the whole counsel of God. And I want to stand before God the Father, just like Paul did. Remember when Paul was standing with the Ephesian, the elders of Ephesus? He says, I, I haven't shunned to keep anything from you guys. I've declared to you the entire word of God. That's my purpose here. 
I, I'm standing before you here to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, when I stand before the Father, I'm going to say, Lord, I gave them your word. I'm, I, I gave them your word. It's, and, of course, it's up to you what you do with it, right? It's entirely up to you what you do with the word of God. But I'm here to tell you that God's word is sure. You know, you, you go, well, maybe it was changed over the years. I think the Dead Sea Scrolls pretty much kiboshed that uh, argument. You know, 1948, some shepherd guy, was, some boys were throwing rocks in, uh, up by the uh, Dead Sea there. And uh, they're, they're just, you know, how boys throw rocks. And, they're throwing, and they hear this crashing sound, like glass or pottery or something. And they go up and they discover all these big jars, these big, uh, uh, whatever you want to call them. And, and they had scrolls in them. And they didn't think anything about them. Well, it turns out these scrolls, one of the scrolls, was uh, the actual the entire scroll of the book of, of Isaiah. And they found this, and then, so then when they finally realized, when people finally realized what they actually had, they, of course, analyzed it and stuff. They're on, it's on display. Um, but the amazing thing about it is they looked at the scroll of Isaiah, and they looked at the Bible that you and I have today, and they go, there is virtually no difference. There's a couple words that are, that are not, non-consequential you know, to any of, any of the message or any of the doctrines or anything. They go, but there's, there's virtually no difference. And so for you and I, we have God's Word. It's a sure Word. It's a testimony of God over the years for you and I. And that's why I treasure God's Word. I hope you treasure it too. And, but the thing is, you know, we're also responsible. It's a, it's a great blessing to study the Word. And, to, you know, it's kind of interesting to find out all these facts and figures. But there's a purpose behind it. And it's that you and I would heed God's Word. And that we would examine our own hearts and our lives and respond to that.